Hey, movie fans, Dimitri Panos here for Popcorn Talk Network's Anatomy of a Movie. Come along with us and take the hero's journey as we discuss King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Well, welcome everybody, and thanks for joining us on today's Anatomy of a Movie, where, as I said, we're going to take a hero's journey, and we're going to uh, dissect, we're going to put it on the round table, and cut it up, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, King Arthur's Legend of the Sword, with my awesome co-host, Marissa Serafini, who's feeling a lot better today. I do. I am feeling better. Hi, everyone. I'm Marissa Serafini. You can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. And you can support me on Twitter at DMovies1701. So, uh, yes, so we we're talking Charlie Hunnam, uh, Guy Ritchie, King Arthur. Uh, as we always talk and we always open up each show because uh, with opinion. And you all know that we're all more than just an opinionated show. We will break the movie down for you, tell you how it's made, what was cool. And all that fun stuff. So, as we always start off, Marissa, what did you think of King Arthur and the Legend of the Sword? You know, I actually fairly enjoyed it. I'm kind of biased because I love the story of King Arthur. It's arguably one of my favorite stories um, just in my life. That like I've seen so many versions of King Arthur's, whether it be television shows, stories, like different iterations and reinterpretations of King Arthur. And I love every single one of them. So, like, I went into this already liking just like the the concept of king arthur and, and the fact that it's like mythological you can like have so many creative liberals to it um and i felt this one definitely took that creative liberty in, in essence and storytelling i liked it it was fun it was kinetic a lot of energy yeah. um fast paced the music was like swelling awesome and i i thoroughly enjoyed it they i felt like some character developments kind of lacked a little bit here of, but visually it was pretty cool. And it was a different ter- interpretation that I haven't really seen. Mm-hmm. Out of all the versions I've seen, it still felt fresh to me, and so I enjoyed it. Well, well, that's awesome, because uh, then perhaps through our discussion and talking about it, maybe you could sway me, uh, because did you not like I it? did not like it. Uh, I, I, uh, this iteration of King Arthur for me, it was visually compelling. Yeah. Uh, I agree 100%. Uh, I saw this in 3D. I know we were talking. I know you hadn't seen it in was 3D. Was it overwhelming for you in 3D? No. I'm going to tell you something. I've said this before. I am so thrilled and so excited that 3D has finally caught up with cinematic technology these days, right? Mm -hmm. Because King Arthur, to me, in a 3D environment, it was one of the most, it's a more challenging film to do. Think about it. There's very low-level lighting. A lot of scenes were in the dark and such. A lot of the action scenes, right? That always led, in the early days of this digital 3D, a lot of blurring, a lot of... uh, uh, fracturing of heads off and like you can't follow things you know now things are so sharp that it was not overwhelming it was actually amazing to see swords go through shirts and stuff was coming at you at a pretty decent pace you were able to follow the action it was smooth it looked great in 3d unfortunately for me that was like almost like the best thing I can say about this movie. And I can't point to acting because acting was really good. I like Charlie Hunnam. We've talked about this guy before. Mm-hmm. It's a, a few good, times. Right? He's a solid actor and, you know, good looking guy. He's on me. He, he, real, oh, okay. You know, I've, 
enjoyed them. Uh, Pacific Rim. Uh, uh, um, we, I enjoyed them also. Lost City of Z too. Uh, you know, not my favorite movie, but he was good in it. Um, Crimson Peak. Uh, again, uh, right. you know, he's. Yeah. He's growing into a good actor, and we have a lot. I have some stuff to say about him a little bit later. But for me, my standard of King Arthur movies is Excalibur, the John Borman movie, mm-hmm. and that that is my bar. And ever since Excalibur, every other King Arthur movie has just never really made that bar. Even Guy Ritchie uh, uh, references Excalibur. In his interviews, a lot. How oh yeah, that, I mean, you know, that was definitely a big inspiration for this one. Absolutely, and you know, for me to rejigger King Arthur, King Arthur's a classic hero's Story. journey. It's a classic tale, but it's a hero's journey. Movies like Star Wars take from the legend, you know, the legendary Knights of the Round Table. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And I didn't feel, I couldn't put my finger on what exactly this was. Is this a prologue, uh, a reimagination, a re, you know, I didn't know, a prequel? Because to me, King Arthur, the the story is a well-made, self-contained boy, sword, ascendancy, fall from grace. Try to get, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, this didn't have that. And the other thing, too, is, again, I can't blame Guy Ritchie. I think you you said it. The pacing of the movie was pretty good, right? Um, visually compelling. But I think it just all points to story. And I don't know how you have a King Arthur movie without without Merlin. How do you have a King Arthur movie without Merlin the Magician? And it brought it up to right. Yeah, I mean the mage. I like her too. Mage. We'll talk about well, her. Well, I think that's the thing. It's like we didn't have the development of Merlin, who is a well-known character that you're expecting, but they kind of twisted it to instead of Merlin, you got the mage instead. Yeah, um, and we'll talk about the mage overall, because she was supposed to be somebody else. Didn't really like this. One. Yeah, no, I just I, I I couldn't figure it out. And like you liked it, I respect your opinion. I have a. I talked to somebody else whose opinion in movies. I didn't hate it. No, I mean, but, like, but I, I liked a lot, a lot more of this film that other people are disliking. Yeah, but, but but I respect your opinion. And there's another person whose opinion, like we're almost twins when it comes to you know movies and such. And before I saw this, this person had told me, "Oh my god, the movie is fantastic!" So that gave me hope, and I was like, "Okay, that that was encouragement." But I just didn't see it, and you know. Legend of the Sword, it didn't even offer a glimpse of Camelot for me. So for me, all I saw was Camelflop. Uh, I mean, I'm just sorry. Um, but like I said, there are great aspects uh, of like the filming of this movie. Um, and I appreciated that. And uh, like I wasn't necessarily bored. Mm-hmm. You know, it had some, uh, like I said, visually compelling uh, and if you had the opportunity, and hopefully you saw it in 3D, you can uh, add to what I had to say. So uh, there we go. 
you know? So, you know, we can talk about, well, what do we talk about? It's inspiration. What do we talk about? I want to know about... I, th- I felt the- like the development of this, which is actually pretty interesting yeah. when you actually did the research. Right. It started um, a while ago. Um, well, Guy Ritchie said that he was always interested in making this film for about 10 years now, mm-hmm. so it, it's been in the back of his mind for a while. But the, the development of this, uh, it kind of gets very convoluted because there were like so many different <laughs> versions yes um like in different iterations from different screenwriters and then like they pitch one version they turn it down they pitched another version like in another author or sorry not author but screenwriter uh, yeah yep, i know what you're saying so yep. like uh, so there was like so many different versions that kind of just like fell into each other and then um somehow this one got made but for specifics it's really like august 2009 wb and legendary um got the rights for john borman's cult classic right. uh, excalibur and and wanted brian singer to to make it that that was like the first iteration and brian singer didn't do it so and then in 2011 so two years later wb took um dopkins uh, mm-hmm. the screenwriter dopkins um and his version and they proposed like uh, Lionel Wigram, Richard Suckle, and Charles Rowan to produce the film yep. and and write it. And that pick that version was originally budgeted for ninety million, and then eyeing for a two thousand thirteen release, so yep. they would have like two years to to make it and produce it and all that. And then something that went under. Yep. And then later, they. Uh, to, to get all this in 2011, they they scrapped that project, and then they then later on they're like, uh, yeah, let's do this version with Guy Ritchie's yes um, screenwriting. So there were so many different versions that got like pre- and Guy like, pitched and scrapped, and ultimately Guy Ritchie they went with Guy Ritchie's. Yep. But the original screenwriters you had Dobkins and uh, Ringram, like they all get screenwriting credit because they. Guy, they had the concept in the story, right? And then, with Guy Ritchie. and then Guy Ritchie comes along, and even his version went through a bazillion uh, like yeah. iterations. It wasn't just like he, you know, he even is on record as saying that he actually saw this as a little more morose at times, and he had he figured on uh, different characters. Like Mage, I believe, was supposed to be... uh, She was originally Guinevere, and then that changed and became Mage. And um, he took his cues from Excalibur and said, well, you know, he changed up King Arthur and he made him um, the reluctant hero. Like, what would it be if if I take him out of the kingdom and put him in the streets? And he goes, wow, that would be... he grew up as a regular As a street rat, Yeah. yeah. You know, almost a con man, and he's he's like, yeah, and that's what he wanted to go with, and so he changed it, and then, you know, believe it or not, too, at the end of the day, he goes, there is a two-hour and twenty-minute version of this movie, there's a three-hour version of this movie, and there's a one-hour and fifty-minute version of this movie, and I think. Well, there's the theatrical, which is about two hours, about two right? Hours, yeah. So, you know, he goes, the film eventually finds its own voice and rhythm. It's I like, would hope so. Which voice? <laughs> right. Honestly. I would hope that after seeing a three-hour movie, yeah, I would hope that it finds um, 
uh, its rhythm. And once it is found, it is found. It. He goes, you could be wanting to make a certain film at a certain rhythm, and the film wants to make a film at its own rhythm. This is all quoted from Guy Ritchie. He goes, in the end, it's about finding the film's rhythm. Then it just changes everything. It changes the tone. Jokes that weren't landing at three hours, he said, suddenly land at two hours. Action scenes suddenly find a voice that repeatedly muddy by its longevity. So all of this was going on. And, of course, this movie was supposed to be released in 2016. Yeah. So um, they pushed the date. They pushed the date. Uh, it gave them time to tinker with it. Although, you know, Guy Ritchie will say, well, you know, listen, it gave me time to tinker, but we, we could have been ready in 2016. And um, so it gave them almost a year. And we'll talk about release dates, too. But uh, there was a lot of history in this movie, even while they were filming, including that Charlie Hunnam wasn't even first wasn't he, choice for this. Yeah, and like Guy Ritchie didn't even want him. Didn't want him. But Charlie Hunnam, he he's like he was so gung ho and like he really thought he was the the one for this character. He actually had a sit down because Guy Ritchie first initially told him no, and, and Charlie Hunnam was like not having it, so he actually sat down. With Guy Ritchie, and Guy Ritchie said it was because of Charlie's Hunnam charisma and uh, uh, like uh, wanting and longing for this character, and like and how determined he was, and like about this character. Guy Ritchie was like, "All right, let's do it." Yeah, I, you know, and this is one of the things too that I respect about Charlie Hunnam. Um, you know, uh, Guy Ritchie, to his credit, will say. Um, you know, to be fair, he said Char- Charlie won the role because he paid for his own flight. I wasn't <laughs> even thinking about Charlie. And and to your point, when Charlie had found out about the role, he flew himself over to England so he can have had audience. Had a cup of tea with yeah, him. Yeah, like, sat down and had tea. And the funny part of the story too, uh, Charlie Hunnam tells the story. He's like, yeah, there were three other men waiting outside to come in to talk about the role. And they were, you know, they were getting along. He and Guy Ritchie were getting along. And, and, and Charlie Hunnam was like, what else do you want from me? You want me to go out there and beat those other guys up <laughs> for the role? And he's like, no, no, we don't need to go that far. And But I love the dedication that Charlie Hunnam has. And and this is one of the Sometimes, things. Sometimes, like, the initiative that Charlie Hunnam took that other people wouldn't have. Yeah. I think that was more appealing for Guy Ritchie. And, like, knowing that he went out of his way just to talk about the role, he let him audition, and Charlie ultimately won it fairly Absolutely. Square. And and I think that Guy Ritchie, what he saw in Charlie Hunnam, too, was a person without attitude, a person that, you know, would be would be a, a team player. He wanted, Guy Ritchie wanted a team player in this as well. So, you know, and something interesting to note about Charlie Hunnam is that, uh, in doing my research on this, I did not know that Charlie auditioned to be Thor. Which, when you think about his looks and stuff, yeah. you go, okay, that sort of kind of makes sense. It would have been a career changer for Charlie. Mm-hmm. But his attitude about it is, he goes, no, I got no regrets. He goes, you know, I'm happy where I am. Uh, I work. I like to get work. And I'll fight for the jobs that I need to, you know, get like this. And so I respect that and hope that you know, maybe, for, you know, Chris Hemsworth now, who's been popular as Thor, you know, maybe those roles that people are looking for Chris Hemsworth, but he's very busy, obviously, in the MCU. You know, look at Charlie Hunnam, because I think he's a good enough actor and he can handle action pretty well. And it looks good doing it. And he seems to be a really good team player. 
from what I was reading in the interviews, I've gained a respect for him after reading a lot about him. Yeah, absolutely, as a person, and the fact that he's not Thor kind of doesn't really pigeonhole him either. Sure. Like, he has the freedom and ability to do other genres, and, like, he can do television, he can do drama, or, like, Lost City of Z and stuff. You know, I praised him in Lost City of Z. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, like, I like that he has that creative freedom to do other different projects if he wasn't stuck as Thor. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, you know, I, I would like to see him get more roles. I really enjoyed him in Crimson Peak. I thought he was good uh, in that, too. And he plays well off of Jessica Chastain. And, uh, oh, yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I really think that that's uh, really cool. Now, Guy Ritchie, as a director, has really evolved. You know, you have to say, from a guy who did, like, Snatched, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. And Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes. Which, again, those iterations of Sherlock Holmes, I I enjoyed. You know, I mean, number one, he was fortunate enough to get people like Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. Mm -hmm. And both, when you talk about a great pairing, those two work well. Then you had Guy Ritchie's um, stylistic form of uh, direction, which bring, you know, it didn't tarnish Sherlock Holmes, but it really brought it modern day. And I really enjoyed that as well. He's been around for a while. He knows his way around a camera. Um, it's not so much that I, 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 don't, I, I don't disrespect him for trying to modernize something, but there are certain types of story arcs, with his, particularly in King Arthur, that I think should be hit. But he's been around for a while. And in fact, he's uh, uh, the Disney movie. He's doing Disney tapped him to do a lot, one of the live action uh, Disney movies for. Um, like bringing from cartoon to live action and I forget if it's like Mulan or he's doing one of those movies as well so you know so and again I can't necessarily point at direction at this movie Um, you know his last movie which I believe was The Man from Uncle you know which is okay yeah that was an okay movie that no one saw (laughs) right Um, you know this movie um, I think is a little bit better than Man from Uncle um, it didn't fizzle out like in the end. This mm-hmm. one pr- kept a pretty decent pace. He was okay with his characters. Um, you know, I just think that maybe had he let it go to some other like writers just for some cleanup, um, you know, we could have had a better movie. But regardless, Jude Law is the villain. You know, he didn't overstep his bounds. Like he didn't, he didn't chew up the scenery. Like he wasn't over the top, I guess, is the best way to put it, right? Yeah, I think that was my thing. Um, and I, I feel like we're getting into Jude Law now. Hmm. But um, him as Vortigan, he is a character in a lot of iterations. Mm-hmm. But it's a character that not a lot of people know of. And what I liked about this version is that I, I'm not really that familiar with Vortigan, but like the, you saw the ascension to power and his, sure. his lust for power and right. like his, um, everything that he did in order to get to the position of authority that he was at. I liked it. Visually, um, I didn't see him as, for some reason, I didn't see him as menacing as, like, most villains. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he he kills the love, like, the people he loved in his life just for, like, that short, temporary amount of power that he can overthrow someone. Um, that I, I don't think it was like strong enough for me to believe him as an actual villain. You know, but and to your point, my only counter to that, to that would be that's why he needed help from the octopus monster, so, whatever yeah, that, that was. Monster. Yeah, um, 
because, as you said, you're right. He 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 doesn't have that menacing approach, although he can stare you down pretty well. Yeah, um, I was like, he he might be twisted in his ways of thinking. Right. But the fact that he needed an outside source sure. to make him more powerful, like, kind of denotes like how powerful sure. he really is. Yeah. And I think that's where I was just conflicted with him. I was like, he wants power, but yeah, he's not power. Yeah. Enough. So it, therefore, I didn't really see him as the biggest villain that yeah. had its own natural. Unless power. he had help. And uh, yeah. but the thing about Jude Law and his casting for for Guy Ritchie, it was a no brainer. Um, they'd worked on the on the Sherlock Holmes movies together, oh, yeah. and Guy Ritchie says, "You know what? He understands my shorthand. Um, we have a great way of communicating. He he gets it, um, and and that I respect. And so it was easy for Guy to go, "Hey, Jude, I'm making this movie. Do you want to be in it?" And for Jude Law playing this kind of uh, mythical fantasy bad guy, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was cool for him. A little bit of a departure. So. Uh, Again, he he looked good in the role, um, and he was fine. Uh, you know, he could be mean. I thought some of his henchmen, like that one guy who was a jerk. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. But like, and then, <laughs> yeah. but I think that's the thing because I've seen. I like. I, I'm a big fan of Jude Law and all of his work, and I know Jude Law can get to that. Like, he can play characters that are like sure. super twisted and dark. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you saw HBO. Young Pope, he was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it was just like the the fact that his Vortigan needed outside sources to make him more powerful, rather than within himself, right. didn't make him as powerful and antagonistic villain as one could be. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I agree. But he wasn't. Again, he was bad. He didn't make the common villain mistake of being too over the top. And then not being able to reel that in. I sort of kind of liken his, uh, in, in certain ways, I liken this King Arthur to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is a modernized, you know, right. uh, pop music in the soundtrack. Alan Rickman, okay? So like, good. This movie could have used a little Alan Rickman. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Sometimes Gruber in it. <laughs> a you little know? bit. Um, this is what I sort of kind of liken it to, where... You know, Kevin Costner is, is Robin Hood is very serviceable. He's a good-looking guy. Doesn't everybody else around him has an accent except for him? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I sort of kind of put those two in like the same category. Except Robin Hood seemed to have a little bit more fun. This movie too could have had a little more fun, other than um, <laughs> Charlie Hunnam saying stuff like "honey tits" <laughs> and things. <laughs> I was like, I think there was. Fun all throughout this film. I mean, you had your moments of levity and moments where like jokes definitely hit. Uh, yeah, but like <clears throat> I, overall, I, I felt like uh, if we're still talking about Vortigan, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, he just wasn't as dark for me for yeah. a villain. He was fun to watch, but just not as bad as the character. Yeah. So, what? Do you, okay, let's talk a little bit too about this. In in essence, this King Arthur is always a, it's always a period piece, mm-hmm. unless you mm-hmm. make a Star Wars kind of movie where you take aspects, or unless you put like a kid in King Arthur's court, <clears throat> which is more modern. Right. <laughs> um, what are your like? What are your thoughts? I mean, because here here's another one of my issues too is its influences were th- look very Game of Thrones ish to me. As soon as I saw the big towering elephants, I couldn't help but think of uh, the I didn't Woolly think Mammoth. Game of Thrones. I thought Lord of the Rings. 
Okay, so I you know, with the Oliphants, right? With the, <laughs> I mean, they're just totally Lord of the Rings. And with with Game of Thrones, they use a lot of these big woolly mammoths and transports. And, and Guy Ritchie too says he loves Game of Thrones. He loves watching that I too. I actually haven't watched Game of Thrones, and so this reference is totally going over. That's my okay. Head. That's that that's okay. But you know, it, it it was really interesting. And it was again, I was like saying, did this movie need Oliphants? I mean, or did it need these big woolly mammoths? I mean, it's a King Arthur movie. I get you want to ramp up, you know, special effects and make things fantastical. But in the King Arthur world, that's already a fantastical world that has some amazing themes. I think it was just set up as a different challenge that, you know, King Uther had to go through just to <laughs> take down. Take down. You know, and I'm glad you mentioned him because Eric Bana. Now, I like him. I like Eric Bana. Yeah. And I was thinking... Eric Bana could make a good King Arthur, too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he's a good actor. He's been around for a while. And when I was thinking, I'd go, yeah, I'd buy him as a king. Mm-hmm. Like, very easily. Like, if you were making a... But, which know. was funny, other people didn't really buy him as a king. When Eric Bana was first casted, they're like, who could he possibly play? He's too young to be, like, a King Arthur. Or, like, he's too young to be the father of Charlie Hunnam's character. Unless it is a flashback, which lo and behold it was. Right. I didn't mind it, and I didn't mind like, it at all. I I really enjoyed Eric Bana's uh, performance in Troy. I mean, like sure. just watching that film, you can understand that he could be in a power, uh, like position of power and regalness. And I'm trying to wonder how old is Eric Bana though, because he, I mean, he he's been around for a while. He was he was the original. Like Hulk in the first, yeah. you know, Ang Lee. So I'm, I'm trying to look him up. Eric Bana, yeah, Eric Bana is, uh, I'm looking him up to see if they still have, uh, he's 48. Yeah, it's not bad. He's, he's not that out. young, but he, he's fortunate in which, you know, I should have looked so good at 48. He <laughs> still <laughs> is able to, uh, to carry that off. And I was thinking, he'd make a good King Arthur. Like mm-hmm. when he's in that role. Uh, and I had no problem buying him as as king. My, I wish he were in the movie more. But I liked that mm-hmm. scene where he sacrifices himself. I like that. That was, see, that was like a whole other take <clears throat> of killing a king or a king Uther that I haven't seen in all the different iterations. The fact that like he sacrifices himself to save his wife Ingrid, and and he actually turn into physically turns into the stone that holds the the sword. I was like, right. I haven't seen that version. Yeah. That was fresh. Yeah, that was sort of kind of cool. Yeah. And it gave King, because, like, the, all the versions that I've seen, it's like King Uther is actually very dark and twisted. Sure. That, like, he's a maniacal king that should not be on the throne, and hence it makes sense that Vortigan wanted to take over. But King, king Arthur is actually a twisted villain. And, like, the fact that this version, he was actually a good guy, sacrificing himself for his family. I enjoy. Yeah. What did you think of all the other, like, you know, Digimon Hunso, who played uh, Bidiver? Diamond. Uh, yeah. I, Diamond, I really, you know, he was fun to watch uh, as well. I did like, we, we talked about the mage a little bit. Now, she was in place, she mentions Merlin. Mm-hmm. But she is more or less in this iteration the person who's she's the sorceress. Guiding. She's the sorceress of the who mage. Ish happen. Yeah. I'm like you go, girl. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, Astrid Burgess Frisbee. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing that correct. She she was good in her role. Um, I thought that she portrayed it really well. She played it well. She's a good 
strong female character uh, to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So, what were your thoughts on? What were your thoughts of like replacing Merlin with Mage? Actually, I wasn't that like I didn't mind it all that much. I mean, mm-hmm. we love Merlin, but the thing is, we've seen so many versions of Merlin. Like, how what other versions can we see? That's not that doesn't get old. You mm-hmm. know, um, I like the fact that the kind of in, in in lieu of Merlin, we got a female sorcerer, and and it made like it made her character a little bit more believable. That the fact that she can sneak sneak up on people mm-hmm. and no one would see it coming because sounds terrible. She's a woman. And you know, and and but like she was in a position that she she can use her her skills to help Arthur. Um, and I felt she was kind of like a, a a thread throughout the whole film. That, yeah, that really helped Arthur along his journey. Yeah, she because if it wasn't him. for Mage, like he wouldn't have gotten the sword back. And like, right, and like I felt like she was the person who constantly kept Arthur on his path. Right, um, to where he needed to be. And like, like Merlin. Yeah, exactly. Does. Yeah, but. I didn't mind it, and then yeah. like I didn't mind it if it was from a woman or from a man, honestly. But I thought it was refreshing to see a woman do it. Yeah, it was. It was interesting to me. It was even more interesting to learn that that character was originally supposed to be um, Guinevere. Guinevere, and again, this is a King Arthur story without Guinevere. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting how did that like you? that happen? I mean, there there are aspects like. Where's Lancelot? Where's Guinevere? Where's Merlin? Where's these the are all aspects. Yeah. Well, yeah, and these are all aspects that 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 build King Arthur's character, whether for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that that's part of the um, that that's part of that journey. And for me, I was trying to figure out what's the journey here. Like what what like these knights of the Round Table, which. You know, I got the joke. You know, what are we supposed to do at this table? Um, which is funny. You know, but the nobility, the honor of being a knight, you know, that's what King Arthur wanted to bring to Camelot. And Camelot's a big deal because in our U.S. history, in our, mm-hmm. in our U.S. history, they called JFK's presidency Camelot. Camelot, Camelot yeah. Um, because of distinction, because of nobility and honor, and 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 so a short period, a where short like period of time, of, of time and strength and protection. Yes, but yes, protection, and you know that's when legend and fantasy mm-hmm. really melds into the reality. real world of reality. <laughs> so, and I was like looking for that thread of the hero's journey. So, am I upset that she wasn't Guinevere? It would have been nice to have had some, whether it be Mage, like if they had Mage and another woman play Guinevere, at least there's the spark of the romance that we can see that can inspire King Arthur to to have this honor and whatnot. Um, Also, I mean, like, uh, sorry. No, no, please. I No, if anyone knows me, I love romance. You Um, do. I'm like the (laughs) biggest romantic. Uh, Like, it also doesn't bother me that Guinevere was not in this film. Because, again, that's another version that we've seen time and time again. And I think also, yeah, uh, having a romantic relationship could inspire King Arthur to do X, Y, and Z, but also could be his downfall, too. Because we know, if anyone knows the canon of King Arthur, like the whole affair between Guinevere and Sir Lancelot, like that also is the start of the descendants of King Arthur. So it could be something that gives 
Arthur's strength, or it could be his weakness. And I'm glad they didn't really have that because that didn't stop Arthur from his his mission. Because I feel like if they actually stopped for like a romantic storyline, that could have gave him vulnerability to to his character in this film. Yeah, and I and I and I, I my take is on it. My take on it is that it's Guinevere. Like he's got to meet her at some point, and like to have a Guinevere in this movie in which they have a romantic thing. Like again, this 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 movie is such a mishmash because it stops at a particular point. Mm-hmm. So and it obviously stops. Well, in this version, before he meets Guinevere, well before he meets Lancelot. The steps of right when he officially became Right. And well before Camelot becomes Camelot, Mm -hmm. right? So, but for him to fall in love early on, you know, who's eventually going to be his queen, like that is a, it's a great romance. It's, and it builds the great drama and it builds the great character building for all involved. Lancelot always feels so guilty for what he's done, as well as Guinevere. So, I don't know. I would have liked to have seen Guinevere in there. I, again, I'm a guy, I, I wouldn't have minded some spark of romance and go, oh, there's Guinevere. Oh, okay. Of course. He's, you know, they're going to fall in love. And and again, I didn't mind Mage being in the movie mm-hmm. so much. It was just, and I liked that actress a lot, too. She was really good. I thought she was good. She was, uh, she has very striking features. Absolutely. That makes you kind of believe that she could be a sorceress. Absolutely. Like, I don't mean for that to sound weird. But, like, you know, you know, but <laughs> no, like, I know what you're talking about. She has a very about. distinct look that you wouldn't really think. Right. Like, as a regular civilian, that, like, she, it kind of gives her a mystery. A mysterious type of look that yes. makes you believable that she could play a mysterious source. Absolutely, absolutely, and and she and she carried it well. She yeah. is young enough, and again, if you don't buy that person having to be able to behold those powers, then the role is lost. You know, the, the role is completely lost. So, let's talk a little bit about because uh, just before the top of the show, we were talking visuals. Um, and you came up with something really cool. I want to talk about the visuals of this movie and the cinematography. I mean, there are so many beautiful locations and sound okay. stages too, and scenes in which they, which to me were like, I was like, that's a sound stage. Mm-hmm. When I learned, I was like, that's cool. And in fact, we're we're going to bring you to a behind the scenes look uh, given to uh, from the New York Times that has. A behind-the-scenes great scene. But before we start into that, I want to talk a little bit about the locations and the beauty of it all and the map. Oh, the map. <laughs> yeah. Let's, um, so the cool thing about this, uh, the, it filmed in a lot of different places. Um, they used the Windsor Great Park, the Apple Cross Peninsula, and the Highlands and the Isles of Skye, North Wales. Um, for Arthur's battles uh, against the Saxons, and Snowdonia, sorry, where uh, Richie uh, chose, good guy Richie chose to film was Nant. I'm gonna butcher this. <laughs> Nant Gwynian. That's why. That's why I sort of passed this to you. Um, they they, they also filmed at the Trifin, a mountain to the west of Capel Curig, whose resemblance to the Knuckle Duster, no doubt, caught Richie's eye. And um, the Tintagel Castle is the cliff top of uh, where Arthur. And the character was conceived as a baby. Right. And um, they also used Queen Camel, the Somerset One candidate, for the location of Arthur's final battle at the Battle of Camelin, uh, where he died. Right. <laughs> and 
And you found this cool. You found this cool map. I found this cool map. Someone, uh, sorry, I completely forget the the source because I did so much research on this. Um, but someone actually mapped out the uh, the like because they filmed like all over Scotland, um, like where each particular location in in Scotland where each scene usually is for right. for King Arthur. So if you're you're tuning into the iTunes version, definitely check us out on YouTube and watch the video aspect. There's a cool map that like visually shows uh, where Guy Ritchie filmed certain scenes yeah. of this film. It is a cool map. And um, I want to talk too, uh, visually, all right, so John Mathieson, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his Matheson? name. Uh, yeah, it's, is it Matheson or because uh, it's an I E S O N. So, um, mm. but this guy has had an esteemed career. He worked on Gladiator. He's worked on Logan. He worked on Logan. He worked on X Men First Class, Kingdom of Heaven. So this is a guy. Also a great film. Yeah, this is a guy that's, you know, in and he's worked on genre period, epic, Epics. fantasy kind of movies like. You know, Gladiator, Logan, right? And we talked about Logan. You can't dispute how that movie looks. And he brought all of his experience and expertise, I think, in this movie, too. Uh, Being able to blend in soundstage with actual location. Um, The locations were beautiful. Um, And that map that we had will show you. And you can do research on those locations because they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool stuff. And so. they they've uh, used those locations for other um, other big productions as well. Yeah. Uh, other than you know King Arthur too. Yeah. Like so. they, um, the Harry Potter. Some scenes mm-hmm. were filmed there in part two, part one and two of Deathly Hallows. Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Isle of Sky sounds familiar yeah. when you said that. So, you know, when you have production design and cinematography and lighting, uh, and you put this movie together, and then you make it in three D. This movie really, really works. It looked pretty. Like well. I like the locations, and sometimes it like and we'll get to the editing, but like it went by so fast you can't really see exactly locations. But when you saw Arthur and like all the people he was traveling with from like different forests and like the big open landscapes, that's definitely where you mm-hmm. saw the the vast locations that they were. Filming. And I'm glad that you, I'm really happy that you brought up editing James Herbert, who's worked with Guy Ritchie before. Mm-hmm. I think what what I think one of Guy Ritchie's strengths is he is a director that can make visually stylized, but you don't lose sight of the action. Like you don't get confused. Does it make sense? Because we always talk about quick cuts and oh, like you're like figuring out. It's it was so like, like so fast here and there. But you don't. You don't lose your geography. You, 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 like, there's not a point where you go, what the hell's going on? Like, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about that in action movies today, particularly where it's all shaky cam and fast cuts. And you're like, what the hell is actually happening on screen? That's one thing since Snatched and Lock, Stock and Smoking Barrels. Like, you can't say that about Guy Ritchie. As phonetic as he can be, he right. still keeps you still understand what's going on with the action well that was also like in sherlock holmes i I definitely felt you get you got that sense um like you can isolate some scenes in this film king arthur that like the the montage the opening montage of king arthur going up from uh, a baby to an adult and where he is you understood what was happening absolutely it was so fast sure cut to really loud music Mm -hmm. but if you isolate that scene cut it out um it could be its own music video Agreed. And 
And again, though, you still understand and are able to follow the action without being confused. He's also, in my opinion, Guy Ritchie is one of the only directors that is able to pull off slow motion and get away with it because he never overuses it. And he seems to use it at just the right moment. And then the action goes back to regular speed, so to speak. Um, you yeah. understand what I'm saying? He I, did can, it in- I can see. It's like um, one of my all-time favorite directors, Baz Luhrmann, um, like Moulin Rouge. A, there are many scenes that are like fast-cut editing, but you still understand what's happening. Yeah, that movie gave me a headache. He's not one of my. He's not one of my favorites, but that's I know what you're saying. Favorite movies, but the, the, I think Baz Luhrmann's style and his editing as well, and like the, the editors on his films, like his style. There are so many scenes that could be so fast-paced. And it looks all over the place, but you still understand mm-hmm. what the heck is happening. Great Gatsby. Um, you know, but the, that movie the newer was tolerated. Version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The like, one with DiCaprio. Yeah. I felt like uh, King Arthur had a lot of those moments where there were scenes or montages that were cut so fast, but mm-hmm. you still understood what was happening. Yeah, and particularly action. When there's an action scene, you want to know what the hell's going on and who's fighting who and how mm-hmm. and where. And again, like I said, with Guy Ritchie, he used it a lot in Sherlock Holmes. He uses that slow motion for like a second so you can see an arrow go by. Yeah. Again, I'm pointing Running the, through the forest. Running <laughs> through the forest. But in King Arthur, I'm, I'm um, particularly talking, there was a scene where, well, a couple. So King Arthur is fighting people and they're shooting arrows at him. And there's one where the arrow comes right at him and it tears through his shirt. Yeah. And he slowed that action down just enough to see that go through. And, and in 3D, it looked amazing. Then there was the scene where he, like, goes around with the sword and he cuts off the edges of all the people's swords. Oh, yeah. And, it, and again, when you slow it down so that you can show me the accident, just go fast and then cut to something else. Like, as an audience member, in a sense, he gives his action time to breathe and he doesn't overuse the slow motion. Like, some people just overuse it. Yeah. And it becomes tedious where he just picks his moments and i think the moments he picks with his editor i think really work and to talk about how he thinks about a scene and you know what he thinks about when he's filming a scene like i said we found this piece in the new york times they call it anatomy of a scene so it's very apropos and uh yeah you'll get to see guy Ritchie and crew at work at one of the major scenes uh here when they're going to uh, behead our, our our beloved hero king arthur So, uh, yeah, if you could roll the tape and put up the volume and uh, just enjoy this video. Here we go. This is Guy Ritchie, the director of King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. There's a crowd of thousands out there. This is a scene that um, I was scared about directing. And the reason I was scared about directing is because it's a cliché. It's a trope of sort of medieval movies, if you will, that you've got to take a, the good guy out onto a platform, stick his head on a block and threaten to chop it off. And thereby, I didn't quite know how to approach it in a fresh fashion. I kind of got and like a sense of What I think makes this scene interesting is the bad guy actually tells you what he's after. I'll let them hate and I quite like that, because really we're after the same thing that the bad guy's after, um, which is a sense of recognition. 
and it's really what makes it feel good inside is being recognized and being and how good it makes him feel yeah so in the morning of me shooting this i wrote this sequence um with jude law explaining why he he doesn't want anyone contaminating his direct route to the source of his sense of self yeah so it's a montage explaining the human condition and specifically the villainous condition, um, which is a search for self outside of self. And that was the backbone to this scene. Of my Viking guests. This is all shot on a, on a stage in Leavesden. Warner Brothers has this absurdly sophisticated stage in uh, the north of London. Um, See, and but this, this is this like is where it was. This is on the back film. lot. Like, so we built uh, <laughs> here. <laughs> we built half a tower. Half a tower. You're born king. It's cool. And the rest Behold the man who pulled sword from stone. It was certainly one of its key components was to express the fact that this was a big film. So it was a time to wheel out the extras and go, bosh, we're playing big. So we tried to make it, um, try to make it as big as we could so you could have a, a, a sensation of vastness and power. Yeah. See, it, it definitely established, like, why King Vortigan, like, does what he does. Right, um, the, like the, the, there, you can see like some aspects of his character why he's so twisted. No, oh, yeah. Um, but again, I not to keep repeating myself, like the fact that he needed a third source to help him make him more powerful. Right, just didn't make him as that powerful sort of as he should be. So um, let's talk. Well, you said that guy. That guy. <laughs> that guy. Um, now that that guy. Uh, I was just looking um, looking him up. He has a a, a key scene. Right, because this is the guy we're talking about. Where um, he he more or less uh, breaks into the uh, secret cave of mm. King Arthur or, or of Arthur and his peeps, right? <laughs> yeah. And so they come back. Uh, they're they're trying to escape uh, from was it Londinium? Londinium. Londinium sounds like a precious metal. It's like too close to London for me to make any distinction. Right, <laughs> and but. This guy sets himself to be up such an a hole, <laughs> such a douchebag, right? Yeah. And I, was like, I, I hated him more than I hated Vortigan. <laughs> yeah, he was just so hated, and the guy played him to a T. Yeah, no, and again, I think for me though, this is one of the faults of the movie. He, they made this henchman so bad, okay, and, and you're right to an extent that mm-hmm. he was almost bigger than than his boss. Than but he is a henchman, right? That the scene where King Arthur or Arthur goes to approach Vortigan, all right, in the castle. And I was expecting shit to go down, and I wanted that henchman, like, I wanted him to go down so bad to get his comeuppance. And then the snake comes in and pretty much takes care of everybody for Arthur for him. Right. And that's the scene. snake was awesome. But it made the whole scene anticlimactic. Very much. I was like, really? I go, I want Arthur. Or 
uh, Jimon Hunsu's character to take him down because he was yeah, so. But yeah, I just wanted him to say he deserves so much better than getting eaten by. He deserves so much more than just getting eaten by a snake. As did everybody there. Yeah. And I just f- sort of kind of felt let down. Like, I felt like he was someone that actually deserved to be stabbed, not eaten by a giant snake. <laughs> right. Like, to summon, like, as terrible as it sounds, but, like, someone actually actively kills him. Yeah. yeah I think that would have been more satisfactory. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. He and deserved who that just missed, Exactly. And I felt having a snake do your dirty work for you, it, you said it was anticlimactic for mm-hmm. me. I was like, oh. Yeah, like, I, and I get the snake coming down. Like, that was... I would have liked it to be, that was clearly a trap. Mm-hmm. Get the sword back in a stone where you can't get it back out. I just wish they didn't try to play it so, like, the like because when uh, Vortigan cuts off the snake's head and Excalibur goes into the pillar, the mage goes, oh, instead of, like, the mage should have been like, uh-oh, trap, <laughs> you fell for it. Right. And then here's a bigger snake, at least that way. Like, you get a cathartic, ah, you just got screwed, because that's what they wanted you to do, um, which is sort of what they wanted him to do. Uh, I just felt that that scene for me, that that other henchman, he just deserved a worse. Uh, a worse death. Yeah, because yeah, he was yeah. so bad, and he played it. We're nice people, right? you guys, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> we are nice people, but we are talking about a movie and bad guys. Yeah, no, and understand what, like, his death was not as satisfactory as it could have been. Yeah. The snake looked cool, and I have no problems with snakes. But my, my thing is, like, I was trying to understand the symbolism of the snake, like, evil, sure. whatever. Is the mage Serpentine. something that we should trust? And this was literally after... The snake had just bitten King Arthur. Like, just trust the snake. Right. Like, trust to do what? <laughs> Especially, and then we see this humongous snake. We're like, uh, okay. Yeah. It was literally just a ploy to get the sword. Yeah. Back. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't he know. always had the sword, but like maybe they they had to put on this big ruse just to get rid of the the number one henchman to Vortigan. Maybe. Uh, I I don't know. He could have used the snake against Vortigan. I think the snake could have won. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Um, I want to switch over to something, too, that you mentioned at the top, right? And and Guy Ritchie, uh, in talking about making this tale today without losing the time period itself. Mm -hmm. And... um, and you'll see where I'm going with this. He goes on and says, that is his, that's my principal challenge. My principal challenge is to somehow strike a tone where you feel that somehow you can buy into the world as credible and simultaneously feel like it's fresh and new. So music was a big component of that. Yes. You talked about the music at the very beginning of the show. Yeah. It was something that I noticed as well. And usually we're big fans of music. Yes. What were your what were your thoughts? Um to me, the first thing I thought of too was Sherlock Holmes. It sort of had that Oh yeah. You know, Sherlock Holmes uses used Hans Zimmer. Correct. And listening to this music, all I could think was Hans Zimmer. Me too. But it wasn't and I was Hans so Zimmer. surprised. It was Daniel Pemberton. I was yes. like, I think he did a great job. But I think there some of the music, for the most part, was so overbearing in this film. It, the, like, I mean, we talk about so with all the films that we talk about. Uh, uh, there can be music that's too overbearing, that mm-hmm. it's too distracting. You hear the music and you forget everything you, you're watching because you're too, uh, like, overwhelmed with what right. you're hearing instead of watching. And I felt there were some moments with that in this film. 
I was like, just listen to the freaking soundtrack that we yeah. opened up on. Like, every score is humongous and over the top. I agree. And sometimes, though, like the beginning of the film, like when I heard that, I was like going, oh, okay, I sort of like this score. But then there were other times where I was like, oh, I don't much. like, yeah, it's way too much. And it was interesting because I also had the initial thought that Hans Zimmer? Did he yeah. get him to do this? Well, like, you got the horn blowing, like, every 10 seconds. And I'm like, oh, it's probably Hans Zimmer. But, you know, the credits at the beginning didn't say it was. No, like, oh, right, no, yeah. I was, I was surprised that it wasn't Hans Zimmer. But you definitely got inspiration from Hans Zimmer. Absolutely. And it, his son or something. Totally inspiration because, again, there were parts of it that did remind me of the Sherlock Holmes theme and score. <clears throat> and... Um, there were there, again. There were scenes in which it benefited from the music, and there were other it, scenes it, which it took away from for, for, from the music. Which is, yeah, odd because we do talk about music, and I feel that music is so important to a movie. And I just wonder too. Anthony, could you play like one of the scores? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Arthur? Like play the outro. Um, like how <laughs> how over the top it is. Uh huh. And you and I, we love composed music. Absolutely. But I felt like the the fast cutting scenes, the definitely the montages running through the forest, even taking down all the guards in the right. square, like all it was is over like overbearing right. music. It was. And then it made me think while I was watching it. I know he wants to modernize it, right? But again, it is King Arthur. Could it have benefited from a more orchestral Yeah, totally score it totally did but the the interesting thing about daniel pemberton uh he like he worked for man man for michael talking about sure. earlier that film but he used a lot of he's he's quotes i started to curate a mongrel orchestra because it made up the weirdest instruments and sounds i could find and make so literally he got weird different miscellaneous instruments and threw them together and made sound it almost sounds made like the way guy Ritchie was directing this sound yeah, but, but uh, and he says he'd be up at two a.m. Um, uh, like spending like hours of putting like percussive sounds together, and there's so much rich image imagery in the film: dirt, the grime, the metal, the leather, the wood, the stones. I wanted to bring as much of this into the score as I could. We wanted the music to feel physically visceral. Sure, we definitely got Absolutely. It was definitely in our face. Absolutely. And bit by bit, we built it into a soundtrack that I can take you on a journey, journey the size and scale of the movie itself. I felt it was bigger than the movie. At sometimes. times, absolutely, I did. At and times. this isn't even one of the more. Like, this I could. Yeah. This is okay. This isn't one of the big. I don't know if there's a, like a soundtrack that we can sample from. But you're right. I, I mean, think it sounds cool when you listen to it. Right now, but yeah. But, like, paired with the scenes that they put it together, it was, sometimes it was too much. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I I'm agree. not saying it was bad. I'm saying it was too much. In certain scenes, and again, I just wonder, would it have been... Could it have gone more traditional, like, orchestral? To, to bring the, the, the heroism, the nobility of, of Arthur, like, could that have benefited? And I get, you want to make this... A little bit modern, you know, that that's what Guy Ritchie, you know, he had a goal and he did it, you know, that's yeah. what he wanted to do. So, um, so there we go. He probably so, wanted Hans Zimmer, but just couldn't get him. <laughs> or maybe the budget was so blown at that time, right? you know, to pay for him. So, you know, so music, and now I want to go into something else too. I want to talk about the costuming. Yes, thanks, Anthony. What did you think about the costuming of this movie? Uh, Annie Simmons, uh, who did this, and 
she's done Great Expectations. She she did Woman in Black Two, Saving Grace. Um, you know, she's been doing this for a little while. Um, I, I definitely felt like it was <clears throat> the, the um, definitely set in period. Mm-hmm. You saw the women in their gorgeous long gowns. Um, it was mostly neutral colors, though. Have you noticed? I like, did a lot of tans. Maybe every once in a while, light blue, but mostly like earthy ground colors, like yeah. browns, tans, creams, um, and and the men, like even Charlie Hunnam. There, there was a moment when he was on a boat and he was wearing the brightest top, like tunic top. Tunic. And everyone yeah. else around him was in black, mm-hmm. but like very, like uh, there was only like a set uh, range, a color palette. Right, she obviously stuck to. Yeah, and that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Charlie Hunnam because he was the only one to me that really stuck out. He was almost too fashionable to me. He looked like he was stepping off the cover of a GQ magazine. Yeah, and there were moments where he was maroon like leather pants, in just red or like yeah. a red color, and everyone else was just bland. Yeah, and he had that tunic on, mm-hmm. uh, that you know, the tie-up tunic, and he posed a lot, and uh, <laughs> I was like. Yeah, he looks like he's just walking out of GQ where everybody else around him looks like they're in the period, you know. But he could walk down the street sort of kind of like that and sort of kind of fit in. Well, at least in Los Angeles, (laughs) you know. But like someone who's grew up on the street fighting for his life and acquiring money, he like obviously had the richest clothes. Absolutely. Out of everybody. Sure. I guess, yeah. It just was, it's sort of kind of weird. Um to see King Arthur that way. And and then the other thing too was it was weird to not see him in his armor. So yeah. to speak. Yeah, like I noticed that too. I thought about that. Um especially every time he goes into battle whether he's like in the town square when they're all running away from right. the guys or and like every time he takes the sword and just goes crazy um with power. Like he's never in uh, in in his armor, even Vortigern, when he just like was going out to to talk to everybody and like have King Arthur beheaded, he's in a full down suit of right. of armor, and he's not even fighting anyone. Is that, <laughs> no, that's, he wasn't. That's nothing. But King Arthur never suited up. Never suited up. Never which, suited which, up. Which was weird to he me. He didn't need to apparently because the sword gave him extra power. I guess. I guess. You know, I I did like the touch where he would drag the sword. And it would spark, it spark. To, 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 to give you the sense of it's heavy. And it's powerful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's heavy, right. it's powerful, and only. It's almost like uh, uh, Thor's hammer, where only one person can pick up Thor's hammer. Right. You know, he's the one person that can pick up Excalibur. Um, you know, and if you're going to call yourself Legend of the Sword, I wouldn't mind a little bit more of the Legend of the Sword. Like, how it was made, like the metallurgy involved, like what makes. Is it Merlin? We know that there's magic, that there's something involved with this sword, but how is this sword? What was the origin of It was of imbued Excalibur? with the, the powerful lineage of a King Uther. Of a King Uther. But, so, and like, I think that was enough for the audience to believe that only the, the bloodline of King Uther can wield this sword. Yeah. Sure. Like, I believed it. Yeah, sure. no, I, I believed it. But to me, too, like, it's such a famous sword in history, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a Star Wars fan can tell you everything about the making of a lightsaber and the kyber crystal and why it's used. 
This is King Arthur. Anyone could use a, a lightsaber. Like you drop it, and the, uh, a droid could pick it up. You know. No, I I understand, but that that's what I'm saying. Like, how is Excalibur made so special? Even in Game of Thrones, there's like a particular sword that's made that's made with like like you know it's a special metal that's put into it, and mm. it's not everybody can pick it up, but there are only few. Because of the way it. that it's made, that can wield it, you know, it's very, very, it's it's a very, very fascinating thing. So, why don't we talk about? I want to move into, I want to move into reception, release, release date in particular too, and yeah. in reception of this movie, um, because I find it, I find it fascinating. Uh, there have been articles written I about it. I thought this movie is very contradictory of itself. Also, because we we talk, we we always talk about like some scores are just like inconsistent with each other. Yes. Um, IMDb it has a seven point four cinema score B plus, which I mean it's not the best, but it's not terrible either. Right. Rotten Tomato is twenty six percent, but the audience is seventy nine percent. So they're like a big fifty. Like fifty point difference there, uh, um, yeah. From it, like what critics are saying and what people are actually saying, and 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 there's been lots, there's been lots said about that, and I mean I think in part, the story of King Arthur is 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 around and people may know it, but an audience of today may not be as familiar. With things like the King Arthur's that you have seen, with Excalibur, well, the thing. even the Sword in the Stone, I am to an extent, the audience of today, and you I are. I get you it, are. but I'm not sure if other people my age would. Maybe I'm just a nerd, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's 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 just interesting because another movie that I can compare this to, uh, if you want to call this a reimagining or so, is and we talked about this almost a, a little over a year ago was the Legend of Tarzan, yeah, too, right? That's Which a great I, film. I really enjoyed that movie yeah, more than that was a that was a good I was like, okay, I get it. This is this is a ton of fun. We all enjoyed it. Phil we, enjoyed we it. Did. I enjoyed it. Yeah. We had a good time with that movie. But it didn't do well. No, it didn't. And so it just makes Financially, me Financially it made enough for it to get its money back. But reception yeah. wise it didn't receive No, all that and well. uh it you know, is the is the property just old? Like, do people are people not done with the reimagining, or like, are too many iterations? Out or, there? or are they not as so familiar with this character to to really know? Like, you know, the, again, the story of King Arthur transcends into society. It's it's, it's influenced other storytellers, yeah. you know, to to tell this story. But I just wonder, did um, recasting get in the way? Um, you know, at, at one point. Um, Kit Harrington and Joel Kinnaman were attached to Star, and later it said Colin Farrell yeah, Colin thought about Farrell. doing this. Um, even Garrett Oldman, yeah, and was then um, at one point a part of this, or like it wasn't talks for this. Idris Alba was mentioned about playing Merlin. Merlin yeah. was to be in it, so you just wonder. And again, no disrespect to Charlie, even Hunnam. Liam Neeson, like yeah. they they offered the role who is in Excalibur of, of Uther yeah. to Liam Neeson, and he turned it down. Yeah. So, I don't blame him. He's great. No, <laughs> and and he did his bit in like Clash of the Titans and oh, yeah. things like that. So it just yeah. makes and again, no disrespect to Charlie Hunnam at all. Um, we we talked about how you know I, I respect him a lot, but when you're you're hanging a hundred and seventy five million dollar movie, you know, on you know you need a little bit of bankability, and Charlie Hunnam I think is going to get there. 
And I think he's getting, the more he does, the more recognizable and the more likable. Mm-hmm. And I think people in, in so he's, he has a drive to work. And I think that impresses crews, film crews. So yeah. I don't know. I want to talk about the release date, too, because I also think that this is very important. Okay, I think it's extremely important because, number one, it was pushed a year back, right? So when you're picking a release date and you sort of kind of have your ducks in a row because you sort of you, you have a good idea of what's coming out. Not only did they decide to open up on Mother's Day weekend. Mm-hmm. Not so much not the many crowd mothers would go to see this film. Yeah, it's not so much the crowd, but they released it the second week of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Which was still drawing in a tidal pool and still had that, that crest and wave going. Mm-hmm. This is a big budgeted movie, right? That has not a lot of star power behind it. And you're going up second week against a movie that has star power behind it now. It's part of the NCU. Disney's throwing a heck of a lot more money. I just wonder what was the thought in Warner Brothers? Behind picking this date. And it also, like, Guardians of the Galaxy is a sequel, so they're, like, people... It's already attached to, you know, itself. Um, oh, like, the date, though, because we know it went through so many iterations, mm-hmm. and I think it had... That's that's where this movie suffered, because it started so many times that they kept... They had to keep pushing the date. Right. Um, and and I, it's understandable that they're releasing it now, because it is a big... Big budgeted movie. There is a lot of action in it. Visually, it definitely it has all the facets in this film to make it a summer blockbuster. Right. And like I can understand that they released it in May because it is the start of the summer. This is a movie that they would release at this time of year. I guess. I to me with the cachet that it has, I just wonder. But you can't. Should they have waited the- till the end of summer? Should they yeah, have waited like so that it's not competing with? It's not competing with something that's tried and true and you said a sequel, right? And it went up against a Mother's Day comedy. It went up against Snatched. Mm-hmm. It is Mother's Day. Um, Snatched it, beat this film. Yeah, yeah. And it just... I just wonder... Number one, I wonder who who is the executive that said, let's do this, $175 million, let's sign off on this. Because ultimately that means at least $200 plus million dollars when you're talking about the marketing, advertising, and getting the hard drives out, right? Mm-hmm. I saw so many trailers for this film. I did see a lot of trailers for it as well. And, and billboards. <clears throat> like they, yep. WB pushed hard for this they, film. They most certainly did. They, they threw their money to, to try to oh, open yeah. up the picture. Oh, on top of that, they had planned for at least another four or five movies. To oh, go I know. Down the like this, the technically this would have been the start of a six, a six film installment. Yeah. If the first one did well, obviously it didn't. So like we're not going to see other movies from this. But this was supposed to be the start of a six film franchise. I know. Yeah. It just you makes takes so bad. Yeah, and 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 it's 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 sad for the cast and crew. It's sad for like somebody like Charlie Hunnam, right? But, but well, because that's the other thing. Guy Ritchie and Charlie Hunnam did their. They did their bit for King and Queen. They did their interviews. They were out there. Oh, yeah. You know? They, they, they Law, talked to Jude yeah. Law. They talked about the movie, so they did what they had to do to try to push this movie. And ultimately, Guy Ritchie isn't necessarily going to take the hit as much as somebody like Charlie Hunnam. And so I just want him to continue his career, and he seems to have a good head on his shoulder. Um, 
I just want him to, yeah, let's overcome. Um, domestically, okay, so it opened, it's opening weekend. It opened up number three, and as you said, it was behind Snatched. It opened up at $15 million. Whoa. Okay. On um, 3,700 locations. 3,700 locations, of- right? Now, its domestic total, as of uh, May 18th, $20 million. So that meant it made about a million a day to get to where we are. Um, now, here's foreign. Um, it actually had 63.8% of the take. It's currently uh, foreign at $35.8 million. So we have a grand total worldwide. Globally, we got about $56 million for mm-hmm. a movie that cost 200 There's going to be a lot of write-off uh, for Warner Brothers. Uh, they better hope... Um, and they seem to have some cachet. Warner Brothers, uh, you know, they'll be releasing Wonder Woman. Uh, the hope that they can, can mitigate some of that money. loss. Um, yeah, King Arthur earned just five point three million on its opening day, including one point one five million in Thursday previews, but uh, a fourteen point five million debut weekend, which is horrific. Yeah, and it's the first summer bomb, quote unquote. Yeah. It's one of the well. It's, it's one. one of the biggest of the year thus far, considering what it costs yeah. to put it together. And it just again, it just sort of kind of makes me wonder. It was, yeah, it, it was the S S um, estimating twenty three to twenty five million opening weekend, and it made um, like it missed it by ten million. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. If, yeah, that, that's a lot. It just makes me wonder again too. Who says okay, King Arthur? We got this story. Yeah, I'm going to give it 175 mil. Like I, I, I'm not begrudging making a King Arthur story. I'm All just, the VFX and the cinematography, definitely. You could when you watch this, it all is the money's up epic. on screen. Oh yeah, oh yeah, like, everything. It definitely is an epic. Yeah. But it's just sad that people didn't go see it. Yeah, film. and I would never. Oh, one thing you can't. It doesn't look cheesy at all yeah. you know all the money it's is up on your value. absolutely and all the money is up on screen for sure um it's reception as you were saying 26 percent on rotten tomatoes which ain't good yeah and you but were the saying audience the audience is 79 which is pretty average and b plus cinema score doesn't suck yeah. you know people that means people will go out and talk to other people about it and say yeah we're i saw king arthur we're talking about it you enjoyed it like i said I know a person who loved this movie, too. And actually, I said, well, if you like this movie, the chances are I'm going to like this movie. You know, it didn't necessarily turn out that way, but that's the way movies are. You know, sometimes you like a dinner, or sometimes people like sushi, and other people want it cooked. You know, yeah. but, but a B-plus does at least mean that there's positive talk. It's just now, not only were you going up against second week, not only are you Guardians. going up against Guardians, now you're going into first week alien covenant yeah like and this summer has a humongous list of big movies that are coming. there's a big movie like now about every week about every week and every week. by watching trailers on king arthur and other movies that i've seen this is looking to be a fun summer that's one of the more i'm like going I'm okay i want to see summer. that i want to see we, that we just went through a lull <laughs> and now we have the summer movies coming out so. and it's like you said they're they're, they're just stacking up so mm-hmm. poor king arthur you know, it's it's, first it's miss. tough. It's the first yeah. miss of the summer. Yeah, it's going to be tough for Warner Brothers to... Uh, Would you watch this film again? No. No? No, maybe on cable. If it was on. Yeah. I'd, uh, you know, I'd and probably I'm flipping watch through. this film again. Or am I going to own it? 
Yeah. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't own it. Um, you know, it doesn't have that much replay. If it were on like HBO <clears throat> next year and I'm flipping through, I might stop on it. But that's about it. I'm not going to seek it out or, or purchase it. Yeah. Um, or pre-order it. You? You wouldn't buy it. I would. I would watch it again. I'm not sure if I would own it. Yeah. Even though I own many versions of King Arthur. Yeah. In, in honesty, I, uh-huh. I've seen many versions like Camelot, Merlin. Um, you know, like I do. First love, night. Yeah, I do love versions of mm-hmm. like retelling of King Arthur. Like I love the general story. Yeah. And and all of its different forms. Sure. So, like, I'm. I may buy this. Who yeah. knows? Who knows? I would definitely watch it again no. though. So, well. Any final thoughts? I think we can wrap up uh, King Arthur. And the, Overall, and the... it's a fun film. It's unfortunate that not as many people as were to be expected to watch this film didn't watch it. Um, but I would tell people, go watch it. Mm-hmm. Just see for yourself, honestly. It's well, not a terrible film. Yeah, we always say that here. Um, you know, I'm not in the same camp as you, but... but uh, this is one of the rare times when I'm sort of in line with, with the critics. Albeit, I do believe a 26% is... A little bit lower than what I would, you know, mm-hmm. what I would give it. Um, you know, it was close to making me angry, but it didn't necessarily make me angry. But, you know, we always talk about the diversity. We, we've been on this show and we talk about criticism a lot. We talk about how, how did they hate this film or how did they love this film and we hated this film. Again, to me, that's part of the amazing right. fun about talking about movies and King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Same thing. If you did see this movie... Tell us why you liked it. Tell us why you disliked it. If you're a fan of King Arthur, if you've seen the movie Excalibur, um, talking to people, they don't know that that movie even exists. I highly recommend that you watch that movie. If you can get the director's cut, check that one out. Yeah. So, and keep on to keep tuning into Anatomy of a Movie because we are going to be talking about Snatched. We will be talking about Alien Covenant. We'll ta- be talking about Pirates of the Caribbean, which that trailer in 3D looks awesome. Can't wait. Mummy, and movies like the, Baywatch, like The Mummy, the, We just had the Kingsman start of summer, you guys. Trailer looks yeah, awesome. Atomic King- Blonde. I mean, so much fun at the movies it's this gonna summer. It's going to be a fun summer. I think so. I think so. So we appreciate you watching. Uh, Marissa, please uh, tell us how people can support you again, where they can find you. Everyone can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. You can follow all of us here at Movie Anatomy on Twitter. Follow the Popcorn Talk at The Popcorn Talk on Twitter. And you can support me on Twitter at DMovies1701. For those who have already and who comment and everything, thanks a lot. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun talking with everybody. It's a lot of fun talking to, about movies. I love it. We love it here. We know that you do too, and that's why you tune in, and your time is so precious. We're so thankful that you are able to watch us and tune in to us. So thank you very much. Keep the discussion going. We'll see you soon. Bye. Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff. We would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.